All right. Well, before we get into it, we need to dismiss the children. So tonight is the first night for uh, the kids, summer kids club. So any workers that need to be over there for that, they can go ahead and go. And the rest of you, you can turn over to Joshua chapter number seven tonight. Joshua chapter number seven. It's like the great exodus part two. Wonderful. All right, I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach tonight. Uh, this is a message that the Lord put on my heart several months ago, and it's been through about four reworks. So uh, he gave me peace finally on, on this last one. So uh, I'm grateful for it, and I, I pray it'll be a blessing to you tonight. Uh, if you are there in Joshua chapter number seven, please go ahead and turn there uh, with me and stand as we read the word of God. We're going to read Joshua chapter seven, verses one through nine. All right, the word of God says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water, and Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for gathering us here tonight. Lord, I thank you for the burden that you've put on my heart in this message. I do pray that you help me as I convey it. Give me wisdom with my words and uh, just fill me with your Holy Spirit power that it might not be me that's preaching, but you preaching tonight. Use me as a, as a vessel, Lord, and I thank you for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever experienced defeat? I think if we're being honest, defeat is unfortunately something that all of us have experienced at one point or another in our lives because, uh, and because we're human, it's going to continue to be something that each and every one of us will have the chance to, uh, to deal with and experience in our future. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if you have ever sinned before, then you have experienced defeat because where there is sin, there is always going to be defeat. But the thing with defeat is that it can affect different people in different ways. Because if, if we're talking about someone that is living in sin 
day in, day in and day out, then naturally they are living in defeat. But because that's where they constantly reside, then they're kind of numb to it. That defeat uh, is not going to be as powerful, that feeling, because that is the norm for them. They've become accustomed to the feeling of defeat. Contrast that with somebody that is living in victory. They are close to the Lord. They're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They're growing in their spiritual maturity. You take somebody like that, somebody that we would call is living in regular, normal Christianity, and you have them experience defeat. You know, maybe they, they looked at something, they indulged in something inappropriate, they lashed out in anger at their family, uh, they said something that they shouldn't have said, uh, you name it. It could be a, a number of different things. The, the, the reality is they sinned and they experienced that defeat. That one defeat for that person that is, uh, that is living the, the Christ life, it's going to have a much different effect on that person than the one that is constantly living in defeat, as it should. Because when you as a Christian experience what true victory is like in Jesus, then you become discontent with anything less than that. But the problem is that because the contrast of victory in Jesus is so far removed from that of defeat in sin... Whenever we experience defeat, it can cause us to have these swellings of emotions that are not necessarily a bad thing, but they are something that Satan will try to use against us and leverage against us to take advantage of us and keep us in that state of defeat for as long as possible. Our church just came out of a series of wonderful revival meetings. And I think anybody that was here for them, you would agree with me that they were wonderful meetings uh, where, where I believe the Lord was, was truly reviving his people. Uh, and it, it was a very special few weeks. There was a, a lot going on, but it was clear that the Lord was working, that God was working. And while we didn't want those meetings to end, we knew that they had to come to an end at some point, right? Uh, just like Peter, James, and John couldn't stay on that Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus forever, they too had to come off of the mountain. And it's been a few weeks since all of that, since we were, quote unquote, on top of the mountain per se. And I want to ask you tonight, how are you doing? How's it going after being on top of the mountain now that we're a few weeks removed from that? Is it going about as well as it did for Peter after he came off of that mountain? Because he experienced great defeat after probably one of the most amazing experiences of his life. Or maybe it's going like it did for Joshua and the children of Israel like, uh, like it was in the passage that we just read. They too experienced a time of great victory. But then, because of sin, that right after uh, that mountaintop experience of seeing the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, they were uh, defeated by the measly city of Ai. And it crushed them. I mean, it crushed them to the point where they were wondering if God was really with them or if he even cared about them anymore. As we read in the text, they, they weren't doing too good of a job of dealing with the defeat until God gave them some direction. Because thankfully, we know that defeat is not at all where God, what God desires for us. And while we may have already experienced defeat just a few weeks after uh, those revival meetings, that incredible time of revival, that's not where God wants us to stay. And so tonight, we're going to look at the process that God laid out for Joshua on dealing with defeat. That's the title of tonight's message, uh, and I know it sounds morbid, but it'll end on a good note, trust me. Uh, and while these steps are very simple, they're also very practical. And my prayer is that the Lord uses them to speak to you as he did to me uh, and get us back to walking in victory as quickly as possible if we do experience defeat, because we are fallible, we're human. 
So let's look at the first step in verse number 10. Uh, read with me in verse number 10. It says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel hath sinned, and, have, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore except ye destroy the cursed from among you. From this passage, we see that the first step in dealing with defeat is to get up. I told you they were simple, uh, simple points. Uh, so at the beginning of this chapter, we read that the hearts of the people melted. Joshua is renting his clothes. He falls to his face. The elders of Israel pouring dust on their heads. Joshua is crying out to God. All of this, we know, is, a, is symbolic of mourning. This is a process that they would go through of mourning. Now, the Bible does talk about mourning lots of things. James 4 makes it very clear that mourning our sin is part of the process by which we get right with God. Uh, Jesus, he was, he was known to mourn the death of Lazarus. He mourned the, the, the death of his cousin John the Baptist. Mourning is not a bad thing at all, which is why one might uh, think God is being maybe a little bit insensitive uh, to Joshua whenever he tells him to stop mourning and get up off of his face. And that's because while there's nothing inherently wrong with mourning, what you choose to mourn greatly matters. In these verses, the children of Israel were not mourning their sin because at this point they didn't even know that there was sin in the camp. And while some may have been mourning the loss of the 36 men, and I do believe that there were some that was doing that, uh, that didn't seem to be the primary focus of their mourning based on uh, what, what they were crying out. Israel is mourning because they lost because things didn't go the way that they wanted them to go. And now they're worried about what's going to happen to them. Israel is mourning the defeat. And their defeat, while unbeknownst to them, was the consequence of sin. So you could then say that Israel was not mourning their sin, but rather Israel was mourning the consequences of their sin. And that's a problem because mourning the consequences of sin is not the same thing as mourning the sin itself. Because mourning the consequences simply means that if that, that sin did not produce that consequence, then it, you would have no problem continuing to partake in it. Uh, if the consequences are the only thing that are keeping you from committing that sin or the only thing causing you to mourn, then that's not godly sorrow. And we can do a really good job of convincing ourselves that we are mourning over our sin when we're actually just mourning over the consequences of our sin. But the thing is, mourning over the consequences of sin really does nothing for us. No matter how sincere you are or how sincere you think you are, mourning the consequences of sin does you really no good. But you can tell when one really gets to the place where they're actually remorseful of their sin. Uh, of the sin itself. And that's when they take action against it. Did you know that we as Christians, whenever we experience defeat, we really only stay defeated as long as we want to. That's why God told Joshua to get up. It's, it, he, it was a call to action to Joshua. He's saying, get, get up. I, he, I don't want you lying down on your face crying about this defeat, even though you might be sincere about it. Your sorrow may be sincere because it's accomplishing nothing. If you're just crying about it, if you're mourning about it, if you really want to show me how remorseful you are, then show me by getting to the root of the sin that caused the defeat. 
And it's important to note that even if we are truly mournful of our sin, and that is what we are mourning, and it's not the consequences, but uh, we, are, we are mournful of the sin because it separated our relationship with the Lord, it grieved the Holy Spirit, uh, we are still not to linger there. But how often is that our tendency? We think that if we just suffer in despair of our sin long enough, then somehow we gain favor with God. That God has to, you know, see us suffering at least for a little bit before he really forgives us of our sin. Now, we know that's not how it works, but we often act that way. We know that's, that's not how it works. True sorrow of sin always leads to action. Proverbs 28, 13 is a great verse that I, I quote all the time. Uh, but unfortunately, do you know what Proverbs 28, 13 does not say? It does not say he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso mourns his wicked sins for seven days shall have mercy. Doesn't say that. Now, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I do wish that it said that because uh, that process is a whole lot easier than what we're about to go through in the next point. Uh, but no, Proverbs 28, 13 says he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. What is that? That's taking action. While we should mourn and be remorseful of our sin, that's not where God wants us to linger. He wants us to get up and take action against it, which brings us to our next step in the process of dealing with defeat. Point number two, get serious. Get serious. Serious about what, though? Well, there's two things that we can observe from these passages. The first one is get serious about the enemy that you're facing. So the children of Israel made two very crucial mistakes uh, in this battle. Uh, and these were not the sole purpose of their defeat, but they did at least play a partial role in their defeat. And that is they underestimated the power of their enemy and they overestimated the power of themselves. In other words, they failed to take their enemy seriously. You see, the Israelites uh, had this newfound confidence after that incredible victory over Jericho, a victory that God clearly gave them. Uh, it was no question that God gave them that victory. But you know, as is sometimes the case for us fallible human beings, uh, we can be pretty foolish at times. And sometimes when God uses us as a mere vessel to accomplish his will, we can get a little puffed up uh, and we can get the idea that we're capable of more than we actually are. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites in this passage. Uh, and you can see this simply by looking at the situations prior to the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. Let me explain. Before the battle of Jericho, do you know what we see in Joshua chapter 6, verses 2 through 5? Well, we see Joshua receiving counsel and instruction for battle from the Lord. Literally, Jesus is there talking to Joshua and giving him very detailed albeit strange, instructions as to how to attack the city of Jericho. Remember, walk around the city seven times, all, all of that. And that's important because we all know how that battle ended, right? Israel is victorious over one of their greatest enemies with zero casualties. Contrast that, though, with the battle of Ai. Do you know what we see prior to the battle of Ai in Joshua chapter 7, verses 2 and 3? We read it. Joshua is receiving counsel and instruction for battle from men. And we know how this battle ended as well. Israel is left fleeing before the men of Ai with 36 slain in battle. It was a defeat. You know, the word of God says nothing about Joshua or anyone else in Israel, for that matter, seeking the Lord's counsel and instruction as to how to defeat Ai before the battle. And you know why that is? Because they thought they could handle it. 
We read at the beginning of, uh, of this, this sermon that Joshua sent some spies to search out Ai prior to the attack. And when the spies returned, they gave what seemed to be what would first appear at first glance to be a fantastic, a great report. Right? Oh, we, we don't need uh, all the, the army of, of, of Israel, Joshua. We don't need everybody to come out to this one. It's not worth all that labor to bring all those people out there. We need maybe two, 3,000 men. That's it. Tops, two, 3,000. I mean, these guys are so small, we're going to destroy them. And this is kind of a side note, but uh, you know what I thought while I was studying this? Where in the world were guys like this whenever Moses sent spies into into um, into across the Jordan back in, in Kadesh Barnea or the, yeah, Jordan. Uh, my mind went blank for a second. Um, so you have these, these two separate things that are going on, right? On the one hand, you have those guys, uh, the, the, the 10 bad spies, right? I'm not talking about Caleb and Joshua. We know they were good. We know they gave a good report, but you have the 10 bad spies going over. They go into Canaan land and they come back and they give a terrible report. I mean, they're saying, oh man, we're, these guys are giants. They're, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We're tiny. Oh my goodness. They're going to destroy us. And then you have these guys over here in AI and they come back, man, you have no idea, Joshua. We don't even need to take the whole military over there. These guys are puny. We're going to destroy them. It really is bizarre whenever you think about it. (laughs) Uh, But what's even more bizarre is the fact that these two seemingly opposite situations are exactly the same in many ways. And again, I'm not talking about the report of Caleb and Joshua, I'm talking about the report from what we would call the 10 bad spies, right? In both situations, the 10 bad spies from 40 years ago and the men of AI now. In both situations, you have the spies only taking into consideration what they are capable of. We can't beat them. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We are too small for them. And then you have the other guys over here. We can beat them. They're so small. In both situations, you have the spies speaking not a single word about what God is capable of. In both situations, you have the rest of the group following the counsel of the spies without any further instruction or guidance from the Lord. And in both situations, you have the children of Israel experiencing a crushing defeat, one in the form of an actual military defeat and the other in the form of a 40-year death sentence in the wilderness. What's my point here? Psalm 33, 11 says the counsel of the Lord that standeth forever. Psalm 118, 8 says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with receiving counsel from man, counsel and instruction from people in your life. I have many people in my life that I consider counselors and whose counsel I greatly value. And I'm very grateful for every one of them. The Bible does say that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety in Proverbs 11. But the, our, here's the thing. Our earthly counselors are not there to replace the counsel of the Lord. Our earthly counselors are there to encourage the counsel of the Lord. And what we see in these verses is that prior to the battle of Ai, there is no mention of prayer to God at all. And where there is no prayer, there is also evidence to believe that there's no dependence on God, which only leaves flesh dependence. And whenever you trade God dependence for flesh dependence, it always, 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 always results in defeat. They got puffed up. They didn't take their enemy seriously. And again, I'm not saying that their defeat was due solely to that fact, but it did at least play a part in it because the plan is different later on. 
So they had to get serious about their enemy, but they also had to get serious about the sin that was committed. Why is it that we so often fall into a cycle of defeat or remain in this uh, chronic state of defeat? Um, alluded to it in the last point, it's because we hardly ever properly deal with the sin that led to our defeat. We hardly ever get up and take action against it. And one of the main reasons we hardly ever deal with sin is because dealing with sin, as many of us know, is very messy. If you want to truly deal with your sin, then you have to get to the root of it, the root of that sin, and destroy it. And it was no different for the children of Israel. God gave specific instructions as to how they were to go about conquering the land of Canaan. In the battle of Jericho, prior to the battle of Ai, the Israelites were commanded to destroy everyone and everything in the city, to take no spoil at all. But one man by the name of Achan disobeyed that God-given command. He took a fine garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold. In other words, he sinned. He disobeyed the command of God. And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, we read it. The Bible specifically points out, after recording Achan's sin, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And with the sin of one man, sin entered into the whole camp of Israel. They were all considered guilty. And now Joshua has the very unpleasant task of getting up and getting serious about this sin. And from verses 13 through 26, we see Joshua dealing with the sin that led to Israel's defeat. And we're not going to read them all for the sake of time. But if you try to put yourself into that situation as you read these verses, this is what I like to do. I like to imagine what, what would it feel like if I were there? If you do that with this passage, you will find that this process that Joshua and the rest of Israel went through of weeding out this sin, dealing with this sin, it would have been extremely uncomfortable and almost sickening for everyone involved. Nobody but God and Achan, along with a few of his family members, knew who the culprit was. So all of Israel was to assemble for this ritual that would determine the guilty party. And this was probably done by means of casting lots or something along those lines. Uh, and so the process began. And I imagine it's a very, very grim and dark scene as these people stood with their, with their, their breath uh, baited and their hearts pounding as the 12 tribes of Israel are gathered and the tribe of Judah is chosen. And then, you know, a sigh of relief falls on, the, on those tribes where they're, they're thinking, oh man, we're innocent. But still, there's this, there's this eerie feeling of not knowing what's about to come. And out of the tribe of Judah, the clan of the Zarhites was chosen. And at this point, you begin to wonder what's going through Achan's mind. Can, does he really think that he can outwit God, that he's capable of escaping God's judgment? Or if he's just crippled by the fear of confessing his sin because it is scary. And out of the clan of the Zarhites, the family of Zabdi was chosen. And time is running out for, for Achan. The opportunity to confess is quickly coming to a close. And out of the family of Zabdi, Achan was chosen. His sin found him out. You know, one may ask the question, if God already knew that, that Achan was the guilty party, then why did he not just tell Joshua who it was? Why go through this long and stressful process of narrowing it down to a single person? And I believe there are two answers for this. One, God wanted to impress upon the nation of Israel the seriousness of disobeying his commands. And two, this long process would give the guilty party an opportunity to repent and confess his sin. 
And you could argue this with me if you want. I don't know it for sure, but I fully believe that had Achan come and confessed his sin before he was found out, that he would have had mercy. And why do I believe that? Well, because the word of God says so. We just read it, Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. But when you choose to keep covering and keep covering and keep covering your sin, that window of opportunity to confess grows smaller and smaller and smaller until it finally closes shut. And at that point, mercy is off the table. God is not required to give it to you anymore. And you have chosen the full consequences of your sin. And that looks different for different people. In this case, it's a very serious consequence. In the case of Achan, we see those consequences in verse 24. Look there with me. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. One may look at what was done to Achan and his family in order to rid the sin uh, from, from Israel. And you think it's pretty harsh and, and maybe even a bit grotesque. Uh, and I would agree with you. And while that may even be true, it's important to remember that it was done exactly the way that God said it was to be done. We don't get to judge God's methods of how he chooses to deal with sin. And isn't that a perfect example of what it's like whenever we truly deal with the sin that's in our lives in a proper way? I don't know about you, but every time that I have truly dealt with sin, you know, confessing it to God as well as the people that are in my life that it involved or that needed to know about it, it was never not once a pleasant experience at all. Now, the after effects of dealing with that sin, of being clean and in the light, no longer in darkness, that is pleasant. Uh, but the process of getting right, facing the reality of that sin, coming clean to the proper people and dealing with the consequences of that sin is anything but pleasant. And getting serious about sin, which is what we're talking about now, it is often something that's painful and uncomfortable. Now, I remember times that, uh, that maybe you do too, where I, I knew that I was, I, God was convicting me about a certain sin in my life. And man, it was just ripping me to shreds. And I knew that I had to confess it. I knew I had, that I had to get right. But just the thought of doing so made me sick to my stomach where I couldn't even sleep or eat anything. Getting serious about sin is very often grotesque and shameful. There's a reason our natural tendency with sin is to cover it up because we naturally don't want everybody to know about the disgusting filth that's in our lives. And when we finally decide to peel back those layers of sin, we find ourselves greatly ashamed because sin is shameful. Amen. And getting serious about sin is also heartbreaking. You know, we, we've all heard stories about uh, people being found out of a certain sin or somebody coming clean about sin that's in their lives that you never really imagined that they were capable of. And no matter what, the situation is always heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking to hear about a, a husband uh, that's, that's coming out about an affair that he had on his wife and see the devastation that that brings to his wife and his children and to just see their, their trust in him absolutely shattered. That's a heartbreaking thing to look at. You know, it's heartbreaking, I think, to, to hear of, of people that have, have 
had this bitterness in their heart for so long. I mean, decades they're harboring it and you just see how miserable it made them. And whenever they're finally coming clean about it, uh, yes, it's good that they're coming clean, but you're thinking, man, yeah, that many years, that's it's sad. It is sad. You know, or it's heartbreaking to see a person who's, whose body has been ravaged by their substance addiction, but they're, they're mournful about it and they're, they're finally getting right, but you just see the, the destruction that it wrought in their life. It's heartbreaking. And while we know that getting serious about sin is all of those things, and we're, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to lessen what, what any of that is, but while we know it's all of those things, it's also critical that we know that getting serious about sin is also absolutely necessary. You see, we are biologically wired to stay away from things that make us feel bad. All right, these things that that make us uh, just uncomfortable. Our brains label all of those things as bad and Satan will use even our own human biology against us to keep us from dealing with our sin. We've all experienced that battle of justification that goes on in our minds whenever we know we're convicted of sin. But we think, oh man, uh, what I did wasn't really, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I used to do stuff that was way worse than that. This isn't really that bad. Maybe I don't need to talk about this. Or, you know, I've already confessed this sin to God. Uh, and, and, you know, I, that's good enough. Now, I know it affected somebody else over here. I know I made this commitment to tell somebody about this sin, to hold, hold myself accountable with these people. But, you know, I confessed it to God and that's, that's good enough. I don't, I don't really need to tell anybody else. But what really is all of that? It's choosing to not get serious about sin and justifying it to avoid the discomfort of dealing with it. And may I just say, I am very glad that Jesus Christ was serious about dealing with my sin. And I'm sure you are as well. So serious that he didn't justify all the reasons why he shouldn't deal with it. Even though he had many, many reasons of why he shouldn't deal with my sin. So serious that instead he went through the most uncomfortable and painful, the most shameful and grotesque and the most heartbreaking experience that anybody could possibly think of. Why? Because he knew it was necessary for us to have freedom from our sin. And if Jesus took our sin that seriously, then so should we. But here's the trap that we can fall into so easily. We know God desires victory for us, just like God desired victory for the Israelites. And because we know that, we often cry out to God uh, in times of temptation, asking him to give us the victory over that temptation. And we often even claim the victory, saying, why are you using air quotes? Well, because the problem is you can't claim the victory over sin while you're living in it. In other words, while you have unconfessed, undealt with sin in your life, you relinquish any right that you think you have to claim the victory over it, even though that victory is exactly what God desires for you. See, the Israelites couldn't claim the victory God intended for for them to have over Ai until the Israelites dealt with the sin that was in the camp. Even though God desired victory for his children, they were not able to have it while sin remained undealt with. And this is why even in our Christ walk journals, we have the, the, the um, spiritual warfare section and the claiming promises section. Those come after the confession of sin section. It's, it's like that for a reason, because we are in no position to fight alongside of or claim promises from a holy and pure God when we are up to our necks in the sin that he detests. 
We need to take that sin as seriously as he does. Confess it for what it is and not just to God, but also to the people that it affected and that need to know, that have a right to know. And that's whenever you, you get clean. That's whenever you, you actually start making progress. Then you can come to God clean. Which leads us to our next step. After we get up and get serious, we need to get to God. Get up, get serious, and get to God. After the sin has been dealt with, you need to get to God. Why are you saying it so often? Because it's crucial. While dealing with sin is always the right thing to do, we know it often takes a toll on us, doesn't it? Think about the emotional roller coaster that Joshua and the rest of Israel have just been on. You know, that all of that momentum that they gained uh, from, from crossing over the Jordan River to now the supernatural victory over Jericho, all of that came to a screeching halt at this defeat at Ai. You know, gloom and despair is now all that permeated through this camp, not just the heart of Israel, but also the heart of their leader, Joshua. And think about how fearful and horrible Joshua must have felt during this time. You know, he's in this incredibly important leadership role over several people that he loves and he doesn't want to fail again. And they're all looking up to him and he, he's, he's just had to go through this incredibly difficult experience of rooting out this sin in the camp, stoning Achan and his family and burning them with fire. And don't think for a second that Joshua took any pleasure or felt any sort of vengeful satisfaction from doing this. Yes, he hated the sin. He hated what it brought to the camp of Israel, but he loved the sinner. He loved the man, Achan. And as we talked about in the last point, this whole event of rooting out the sin was a heartbreaking experience that made Joshua sick to his stomach because he loved the people that he was put in leadership over. He didn't want to do that to Achan, but it was what God told him to do. And after such a painful and traumatic experience, nobody can comfort Joshua like God can. Because with the sin properly judged and dealt with, God's favor toward Israel was now restored. And he gave Joshua those sweet words in chapter eight and verse one. Look there with me. Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee and arise, go up to Ai. See, I've given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. <clears throat> you know what you get when you get to God after dealing with sin? Encouragement. Yes, the process of confessing and dealing with our sins is anything but pleasant. But as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's nothing quite as pleasant as being made clean before a holy God. There is a, a peace that comes from God that you cannot get anywhere else whenever you trust that promise. But here's the key. You have to trust the promise. So often, even after we confess our sins and, and we deal with them in the proper manner, we continue to linger on that which has already been forgiven. We treat them as if they're still there. But if we really took God at his word whenever he says he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then we would see that that means that those sins are gone. He has cast them as far as the east is from the west. He is never going to bring them up again because he remembers them no more. And we need to get to God after dealing with sin to remember who he is. He's the loving father that only desires good for his children. And a loving father will not hold the sins of the past over his children. Why? Because he's placed them under the blood of his precious son, Jesus. 
You probably remember pastor hearing, uh, hearing it, putting it this way. Uh, whenever we confess our sins, as 1 John 1, 9 says, and God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, we are then according to the word of God, as right with God the Father, as Jesus is. What an incredible thought. You say, I don't, I don't feel like it though. I don't feel that way whenever, whenever I ask God to forgive me of my sins. Doesn't matter if you, if you feel like it or not. That's, that's what the Bible says. So get to God and take him for his word whenever he says he for, he's forgiven you of all your sins. It doesn't matter about our feelings. It matters about whether the word of God is true or not, whether God himself is true or not. That's what matters. Our feelings will come later. Don't worry about them. So get to God and remember his wonderful promises that he made to those that obey his commands to properly deal with their sin. And it will bring great encouragement and joy to your soul to know that there is nothing between your soul and the Savior. And once you've done that, you're ready for the final step. And that is point number four, get to work. Get to work. Get up, get serious, get to God and get to work. I feel when most people deal with sin, we stop here, uh, which is not good because if we, if we stop here, then it's, it pretty much guarantees that we will fall right back into the sin that we just got done confessing. When you experience defeat, you have to get up, right? You, you got to get serious about the enemy, serious about the sin that led to your defeat. You got to get to God and be encouraged by his promises. But if you do not get to work and follow God's plans to set yourself up for victory, you will will find yourself in defeat once again. You see, God has already given us the victory over sin. We know that. We even have a verse, uh, a promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God has made a way of escape for every temptation that we will ever face in life. Think about that. Think about how incredible that is. If you're saved in here, every single time that you are tempted to sin, God has graciously given you a way of escape. What a wonderful promise. But the thing is, we have to make the conscious decision to actually take the way of escape whenever it's presented to us. We have to make the conscious decision to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. We have to put on the armor of God. We have to be sober and vigilant. We have to stand against the wiles of the devil. We have to follow the plan that God put in place to keep us on the path of righteousness and out of trouble. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? None of these things just happen. They, they all take work on our part and we have a lot of work to do. Now, some might be thinking, well, you sure are talking a lot about works, Brother Baker. Are you, are you saying that victory only comes if we work for it? What about God? Well, yes and no, I am saying that because if you're depending on your works alone to bring you victory over sin, then no, you're going to fail miserably. But if you think that you can just sit back and do nothing to set yourself up for victory and say, I'm depending on God for victory, you will also fail miserably because that's not how God works. Have you ever stopped to consider how when the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, God often uses words that refer to work? Be sober, be vigilant, flee youthful lust, resist the devil, stand against the wiles of the devil. We wrestle against principalities and powers, casting down imaginations and every high thing, right? None of these words are things that happen passively. They all require work on our part. Otherwise, there is no victory. Now, I'm not saying that we rely on our works to bring us victory. I'm not saying that at all. But our works do show God that we are serious about being co-laborers with him. 
that we are serious about desiring victory and that we are serious about depending on him to give us that victory. Because isn't that what, what true dependence really is? Isn't true dependence faith in God? And James 2.20 says that faith without works is dead. We don't get to sit on the sidelines and expect to see victory in our lives. Just like God didn't just go through the promised land and wipe out all the inhabitants by himself. Now, could he have done that? Absolutely. And he has done stuff like that in the Bible. We can read about it. Sometimes he chooses to do stuff like that. But the great majority of the time, if God's people wanted victory, then God made them grab a sword and start swinging it. And the warfare is different for us now, obviously. We're not going out swinging swords at people, but the concept is the same. If we want victory, then we actually have to do the work of grabbing our swords and learning how to wield them. If I can put it this way, one of the ways God works the most is through your work. If you do everything you can to set yourself up for victory over sin each and every day, you seek the Lord every morning for his wisdom and guidance, you, you put on the armor of God, you maybe delete the apps off your phone that cause you to stumble, you memorize scripture to shoot back at Satan while he tempts you. You turn off the radio in your car when you're driving so you don't have to listen to that garbage that's in there. You decide not to go down that aisle in the grocery store anymore. You decide maybe not to take that extra shift off of work uh, so, so that you can instead be home with your family. You get around a group of people that can hold you accountable for your actions. You make sure you're in, a, in your place every time the church doors are open. Whatever it may be in whatever battle you happen to be facing, you do what you know God wants you to do and trust that it's only by the grace of God that you can have that victory over sin in the first place. And then you are well on your way to victory. He's going to you use your sowing and your plowing and the watering and caring for the ground that is your life to bring forth the fruit of victory that he desires you to reap. But when we get complacent and we stop doing our part because we do have a part to play in the matter, we are no longer co-laborers with God. Instead, we are lazy servants looking to reap the blessings of victory where we have sown absolutely nothing. Do you know what we see in Joshua chapter 8? I'll tell you what we don't see. Uh, we, we don't see Joshua and the Israelites doing the exact same thing that they did before when they lost against Ai and expecting a different result. Why? Because if you see a problem with your current method and you do nothing to course correct, you do nothing to make adjustments, but you still expect a different outcome for whatever reason that you got before, that's the definition of insanity. So let's see what they did different this time around. Look at chapter eight and verse number three. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose out 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them saying, behold, ye shall lie in wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city, but be ye all ready. And I and all the people that are with me will approach unto the city and it shall come to pass when they come out against us as at the first that we will flee before them for they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city for they will say they flee before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. 
Then ye shall rise up from the ambush and seize upon the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it shall be when ye have taken the city that they shall set that that ye shall set fire on set, set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord shall ye do. See, I have commanded you. So from verse three, all the way to verse 28, we see Joshua and the children of Israel getting a new plan of attack from God this time and going to work to execute it. And this time they took all the people of war. That's a lot more than 3,000. They were not gonna make the same mistake that they did before of underestimating their enemy. They took everybody to this one. And this time they didn't march into the city uh, overly confident in their own abilities. No, this time they had a calculated plan given to them by God. And do you know how they showed God that, he, that they were trusting in him and him alone to deliver them? Do you know how they showed God that? by following his plan to the T. You see, what, what brings victory is not necessarily the plan that we use. Does that mean that plans are bad? <laughs> no, uh, plans are obviously not bad. They're, they're very important. Having a plan is extremely helpful in many ways, but it wasn't the plan that the Israelites used in and of itself that resulted in their victory over AI. It was the fact that the plan came from God. That is what made the difference. Because here's the thing. You and I, we can make whatever plans we want in life, right? Plans to make a lot of money so that we can provide uh, for the people that we love. Plans to have a healthy family. Plans to accomplish this goal or that goal. Even plans to have victory over the besetting sins in our lives. You name it. We can have a plan for it. And we can do everything that we possibly can to ensure that this is the best plan to get the particular result that we are looking for. But the problem is, it's our plan. And unless your plan lines up perfectly with God's plan, there's only one result that can occur, and that is defeat. Well, the, the world follows, you know, their own plans, and a lot of them seem to accomplish great things. True, but is there really any true victory if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I would call that defeat. And the same thing goes for the Christian as well. You can follow your own plan if you want to whichever one you want. And you can even get the results that you were looking for here on earth. But if those plans that you followed were not God's plans, then at the judgment seat of Christ, when your accomplishments and service go through the fire and are tried to see whether they were done in the power of, the God or in the power of God or in the power of the flesh, you'll be very disappointed when you see that all you fought and clawed for here on earth is consumed by the fire because it was nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. And I guarantee you that the worst defeat that a Christian could ever experience here on earth will pale in comparison to the defeat that he will feel when all of his life's work will be tried by fire and burned up and he will have nothing to lay down at the feet of the one that saved his soul. That is a defeat. But you know what? When the, the children of Israel followed God's plan of attack, they experience the same thing that you and I will experience if we trust and obey God's plan. Victory. Look at verse 18. When the children of Israel go to work to execute God's plan, look at what God says. Talk about encouraging. And the Lord said unto Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in thy hand toward Ai, for I will give it into thine hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that he, that he had in his hand toward the city. Skip down to verse 26. For Joshua drew not back his hand, 
wherewith he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. That is quite a different outcome from the previous battle, isn't it? Why? Because they got to work following God's plan and not their own. You know how you actually show God that you desire victory, that you truly desire victory? You get to work on his plan, not on yours. I want to ask you again tonight, how are you doing? Are you feeling defeated? Are you wondering if what happened just a few weeks ago was really real or if it was just some emotional experience? Well, I'll tell you, if you knew it to be real back then, then nothing has changed. Why would it cease to be real now that a few weeks have passed by? As we've heard pastors say several times, it's the same Jesus, all right? Uh, And he only desires victory for you, not defeat. So if you've fallen back into sin or you are feeling defeated, then get up. What are you doing? Get up. Stop wallowing in despair and take action against what has caused this defeat. Get serious about the enemy that you're facing. It's so easy to coast and let your guard down after being on the spiritual mountaintop. And when we let our guard down, we are easy prey for the enemy because we are not taking him seriously. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, it doesn't say that we need to cower in fear at the feet of Satan. It does not say that at all. It just says we need to be sober and be vigilant. What is that? It's ready to fight. Get serious about the sin that's in your life. Remember what the sin of one man caused in the entire nation of Israel. One man's sin caused 36 men to be killed, 36 innocent men to be killed. It was a serious issue back then. But what about now? One man's sin caused an innocent man to be killed. That's Jesus. And our sin is still a serious issue. And while it may be incredibly difficult to deal with properly, it is, absolute, it is an absolute necessity if you truly want to experience the victory that God has for you. And once you do that, get to God. Remember who it is that you call your heavenly father. Remember the promises that he has made to you and thank him for them. Thank him for being so long suffering and forgiving and ask him to show you the path that he wants you to take now that that you might have the victory in your life. And then get to work. You've tried your plans long enough. They don't work. We've all proven that our our ways do not work. We kind of stink at making our own plan, don't we? What action step is God calling you to take that you have been resisting? What, what instructions has he given you that you know will help you have victory over that which is keeping you defeated? And what plan of attack is he, is he pressing you to implement in order to lead you to victory, but that you just, nah, I, don't, I just don't want to do it. It seems hard. Harder than living in defeat? Follow God's plan. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Exodus 15, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And whenever we think in the, in the realm of, of spiritual warfare and everything, you know what that means? It means Jesus is a way better fighter than you and me. He knows the battles that we face every day far better than we do. And he knows how we can have the victory over those battles, so much so that he guarantees it if we follow his plan. How do we get it? We trust his plan and obey it. And you know what obey is short for? It's in the Greek, get to work. That's how you deal with defeat and walk in the victory that God desires for each and every one of us. Let's all stand.